Welcome to the latest Religion Media Centre podcast. I'm Hannah Scott-Joint and this month we're doing things a bit differently. On Monday the 16th of May, we held our fourth Exploring Belief Festival and it was a really fabulous day of interviews, panels, chat and networking and just really good to be back in person for the Religion Media Festival after the last couple of lockdown years. So we thought this month we'd give you a flavour of all that went on to whet your appetite for the complete interviews and panel discussions which are now available on our website. The day kicked off with a keynote interview with Cardinal Vincent Nichols, Archbishop of Westminster and President of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. He was planning to join us in person, but had to go to Rome for a meeting at short notice concerning the fight against human slavery, a subject very close to the Archbishop's heart. So instead, a few days earlier, Roger Bolton recorded an interview with him at his house in Westminster. They talked about the shock around Europe and the world at the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, and Roger asked the Cardinal about whether he thinks the Roman Catholic Church, and the Pope in particular, could have a role in bringing the conflict to some sort of cessation. Well, there's no doubt at all that that would be his aim, that would be his deepest desire. Nobody, I think, expresses more eloquently the horror of warfare and its destructive nature. Warfare doesn't solve anything. It might stop an enemy advancing, but it doesn't solve the underlying problems. And I think we've seen, some people are upset by it, but we've seen a certain caution from the Holy See in not outrightly condemning Russia. But why? why not? How that, can you not? How can you not condemn well, some the of reason, the brutality and massacres no, that no, we've seen? No, the brutality is utterly condemned. But I think the Holy See is determined to try and keep a window of opportunity open that it might be able to use. Are you deeply disappointed in the in the attitude taken by fellow Christians, though of an Orthodox Church in Russia? Yes, but I also try to understand some of the difficulties that they're in. I mean, put it very briefly, the Russian Orthodox Church was re-established by Stalin. And the Russian Orthodox Church and its ties to the powers that be in, in Russia are, I think, quite inhibiting. That's a negative thing. I think also the Russian Orthodox Church stands for a long, long history and an aspiration, which I personally don't agree with. But I think it's, um, it's easy from here to say the patriarch should be condemning the actions of Putin and the, the Russian armed forces. My instinct, every instinct is, yes, he should be. But then I don't wear his shoes and I'm not, not under the influences that he is under. So you don't, think, I, you don't think he should be expelled from the World Council of Churches? Uh, I don't know enough about the World Council of Churches, frankly, to offer an opinion on that. I don't know what other ambiguities it, it already embraces. But certainly there is a scandal attached to that uh, reluctance, refusal even, not just to condemn, but to stop supporting mm. the Russian military effort. But I think we also have to try and understand where he is. I think you see that in the Orthodox community in Ukraine, which is, for many, many centuries, has been a strong point of the Russian Orthodox family, of that, mm. that Orthodox family. And now it's split uh, because some are saying they cannot maintain any contact with Moscow. Others are saying we probably have to. Well, but then when I listen to Bishop Kenneth here, for example, from the Catholic Ukrainian church, and he was saying to us last week, he said, please pray for my priests and people because all the priests are staying put. No matter what the circumstances, they're staying with their people. But returning to what the role of the Pope might be in these circumstances, some people may remember the controversial behaviour of uh, the Roman Catholic Church during the Nazi period when they tried to build bridges. And some people would say they tried to build bridges with something which was so evil there was no point trying. Isn't there a danger now that the church will be thought of trying to build bridges uh, to Putin when in fact it should clearly state 
which side it's on in this conflict, and it can't be on Putin's side. No, it can't be on Putin's side. I think the Pope would, would want to keep saying warfare is unacceptable and that he would do anything to bring this to an end. But that's, that's you, say like that, you could say that generally about any war. Of course. But you're, what you're suggesting to me is the Pope does not want to identify an aggressor because he thinks that might stop any potential peacemaking. Is that I what you're saying? I, I, I don't think there's any, any doubt at all about who is the aggressor. And in, in the face-to-face -face conversation that he had with Patriarch Kirill, he said to him, brother, we are disciples of Christ. We are not the church of a nation. We are not the, the puppets of a, nation, of, a, of a state. And we must speak the language of Christ. Now, he does. And he would say, all of this aggression, this destruction is abominable. It is awful. And it must be brought to a halt. But I think he still they still wish to keep that door open. I, I don't entertain that stance myself. Uh, I would say I could, not open a I could not open a conversation with the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church in this country, in Oxford, as you know, was attacked and was vandalised. Now, that's not a right action to do, but I would want to keep a bit of a distance. But I respect deeply the international role of the Holy See. This has been an extraordinary period. We haven't yet mentioned COVID and the uh, extraordinary impact that has had. Do you think that it's had, and we know the impact it's had obviously on the economy, and we'll come to that in a moment. We know the impact it's had in terms of the tragic number of deaths and the great question marks that have been raised about how we dealt with that. But on the individual, do you think this has made people think perhaps more deeply about faith? I think, I think many people have found um, a kind of emptiness, a kind of question mark deep down in their personality, in their psyche, in their consciousness. Maybe, maybe two or three o'clock in the morning, that's when it normally hits me. But the, it, it, there's a kind of space, an emptiness. Now, Cardinal Hume was always very fond of the expression that within every single human being, there is a space that only God can fill. And I think we've touched into that. Our reflections in the Catholic community, when we've looked at the patterns of people tuning in to live-streamed prayer or the celebration of Mass, we've coined a phrase of the COVID curious, you know, that, that in that space, they think, now, what, where do I go? What do I do? And there have been many, many thousands of people, and I think this is true, certainly for the Church of England, and I'm sure for many other faiths, that this has awakened a sense of inadequacy, a sense of incompleteness, a sense that my life isn't totally self-contained, it's not self-enclosed. Because as we find our contact with others broken, we begin to realise that individualism is not the true nature of the human person. We are communitarian in our origins, in our upbringing and in our fulfillment. We belong to each other. And then once that thought crosses your mind, you say, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a common origin. It comes from that often kind of mysterious sense of what is it to be a human being? And the role of religion you know, you could put it simply, it's to keep the rumour of God alive and to, as it were, put into that space the invitation, the invitation of a God who knows, who creates, who sustains, who loves, who has compassion for us and who has a purpose. There is a purpose in my life which God fulfils. For some people, it looks as though we're both in a period of, of real, a real problem with social cohesion which is likely to get worse. Can we deal with the economic issues that are coming up? Uh, real talk about um, food poverty, uh, energy poverty, and so on. The Roman Catholic Church is at the ground roots. Do you see that happening now, a real increase in poverty in a real sense? I think in, in approaching that, I, I'd just like to backtrack a little bit and to say that... Um, the survival, a question of survival should never be an individual quest only. 
uh, the question of prosperity should never be an individual quest only. A question of, of social cohesion is a question for the whole of the community. So an, an entrepreneur who makes a lot of money has a responsibility to others in the way he uses it. A person who's struggling has a right to turn to their neighbours and other people so that they can cope together. So I would want to start by saying, you know, it's the nature of community that lies at the heart of what I'm going to say. And I, do, I really do think religious faith nurtures and sustains a true and resilient sense of community. So what so, will your church be doing at the grassroots well, faced with genuine doing, food poverty? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, should, it should carry on what it's doing. So we have, just in this diocese, we have 130, 140 different food banks that are worked in cooperation with other churches, with the Jewish community, etc. That's in parishes and schools. We have a network of food supermarkets, which are wonderful to see. They're, they're staffed by people who have struggled themselves. And people can come into this supermarket of donated goods, pay five pounds and take their selection of food. They choose it and they're served by people who are in a like position themselves. We have a systematic programme now of moving from what called food poverty to food resilience. So how do you make better use of the resources that you have got? I have a place in Boreham Wood. What did they do? They bought 30 slow cookers and began to give these to families, show them how to use them, how to avoid the waste of food and how to become more resilient mutually in the way that we deal with the, the current situation. And the same, there is an endless list of initiatives I could reel off in partnership with local authorities on credit for people who are struggling with their heating bills, uh, money managements that, that is there to be provided. Now, all of this springs from the motivation of faith. And in the interesting passage of time over the last two years, there was a very significant moment in our roundtable meetings with the government when the government came up with the second closure to which we objected quite strongly. The closure of the churches. Yeah, yes. yeah. And we objected quite strongly. And it was interesting, the minister at the time said, he said, well, look, this decision has been made on what's considered essential. So I said, OK, can we change our argument then and to say it is essential that the churches continue to provide this span of social support, continue to be available to you for the promotion of vaccination, etc. And in order to sustain that and nurture it, we need access to the church because these two things go together. One example in East London, the parish priest went to object and he said, if you're closing the church, I'm closing the food bank. They said, OK. So it's, you, you cannot keep picking the fruit of a tree unless you nurture its roots. Cardinal Vincent Nichols talking to Roger Bolton. And remember, the whole of that interview is available on the RMC website. Then it was the first panel discussion of the day with the not remotely provocative title, Do Robots Have Souls? Rosie Dawson was in the chair, joined by Dr Beth Singler, Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence, Homerton College, University of Cambridge, Professor Neil Lawrence, Deep Mind Professor of Machine Learning, University of Cambridge. Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner, Rabbi at Bromley Reform Synagogue and former Senior Rabbi to Reform Judaism. And Dr Nick Spencer, Senior Research Fellow at Theos Think Tank. First up, Beth Singler gives her opinion on whether robots, or indeed humans, have souls at all. I would like to start by saying that I remain agnostic on the ontological, the actual reality of the soul. Let's think about what that question implies about our history of having this debate as well, and the kinds of non-human and human intelligences we have included or excluded. But it can very quickly 
divest into a very strong binary of the utopian and the dystopian. So we would hope that in the utopian sense, it would lead to valuable, useful conversation about what is the relationship between religion and science, as we would have here, I imagine. But as a, as a public anthropologist looking at the discourse online, very quickly it can go into the dystopic space. And when we think about the future of AI and robots, we very quickly pick up narratives and tropes from science fiction and when you start talking about will robots have souls, you start worrying about all the attendant terms that come with that, with the baggage. We talk about consciousness, sentience, agency, free will, and you fall quickly into these stories about robot uprisings. So we have to be very careful. So many people out there are sort of getting their dribs and drabs from imagery in the press, in science fiction, and running very fast into the dystopic talk. Um, Neil, you wouldn't call yourself religious, but you're very involved in conversations with religious partners like Laura on this topic. You're deep into machine learning and all that means. Why is it important for you to be involved in these sort of more sort of philosophical conversations, if you like? Well, I think they're very informative. Contextually, what we're talking about with religion is an other intelligence that's outside us. And people have put a lot of thought into what that means for us. And I think you see a lot of the conversations, as Beth was hinting around, AI are a bit simplistic at the moment. And one of the ways of lifting those conversations is to look at this history of conversation about outside intelligences and, and see the sort of path that they, they, they went along. Laura, you're a self-confessed geek and you're a lover of big data. I have. Um, but you're also a rabbi, so I'm going to get you compart to compartmentalise a bit. And with your rabbi hat on, um, why is it important for Judaism to engage with these questions of, a of AI? Uh, well, I would say all religions, all philosophies that look at meaning, I feel, have a duty to look at the most important issues of the modern age. And what we are faced with now and finding a language around it to move away from exactly what Beth is saying about dystopian and uh, fundamentalist thinking is for all of us. It's not, it's not just Judaism. I can say for Judaism, the questions that are important that we struggle with, that they raise, is not so much about the soul and robots, but uh, what does it mean to have ex human experiences mediated by a screen? And that is the big thing for us when so much of religious life is the person next door to you. What, you know, what is the meaning of humanity when actually it's not in the room? And in the world of avatars, what is the religious meaning and the um, enabling of carrying out of commandments if it's done by an avatar? I've not been chosen for uh, chairing this debate because of any technological knowledge that I have. This will become very clear. So I just um, want to ask Beth, um, just for a, a couple of very simple things. There's artificial intelligence, and then there's something called artificial general intelligence, and I want you to differentiate between the two. Okay. Um, in uh, the most common terms, artificial general intelligence is the idea of an AI that can do everything a human can to equivalent level. The ability to switch between narrow tasks to being able to do several different things at the same time or to have been set up to do one thing and then choose to do something else. And that's, that's usually the general conception of a human-like artificial intelligence. And then there are sort of stages beyond that that people speculate on. So artificial superintelligence, being able to do things at a level far beyond human intelligence. Now, we're already there as a narrow, uh, narrow example with things like AlphaGo can play Go at a super intelligent level, but it can't then decide to go off and do language processing. It's a very narrow program. Uh, so the speculations we have about super intelligence sort of grow on that AGI idea that it not only can do everything a human can do, but all those things at a super level. And then you also have the technological singularity as a concept. Right, tell us about that. That's the scary bit. <laughs> That's the one where we speculate on the development of intelligence. We refer to Moore's law and think about the, the growth in the number of processes and we equate this to intelligence as an exponential growth up into a scale we can't even really comprehend. So we borrow from cosmology and use the language of the singularity. And this is either a singular entity or many entities or a combination of human uploaded minds at, at a very exponential intelligence that's beyond conception. This is where the robots take over. So, so this, is, this is doomsday, isn't it? This is the apocalypse in secular terms, Neil. In some scenarios, but yeah. all. Yeah, and I think that that's where we see the sort of history of um, religious thinking encroaching on the 
artificial and people who claim to be non-religious reconstructing quite sophisticated religious ideas, but ones that I think go way back into Bronze Age and Neolithic times. Um, these narratives are appealing in some sense, historically appealing, but they're not really representative of the technology. So we don't have anything on our AGI, artificial general intelligence. Like All the capabilities we've gained so far are in narrow fields like language processing or language generation. Um, but of course, it's very hard to separate out these two things in the public mind. So when they see these advances, they sort of, and then hear these other stories, everything gets conflated. You don't have to go all the way with the idea of the singularity, though, to um, sort of in- engage with the question about the extent to which AI is starting to perhaps take human decisions from us. I mean, Laura, can you speak to the, the human fears that the idea of the singularity is, 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 uh, is talking to? Yes, I loved what you just said about taking human decisions from us. And I think that that's the core idea. Where does agency lie? So a lot of the stuff around the the language that gets used, and um, Neil will often talk about, you know, the anthropomorphisation of AI, and therefore what we're projecting on AI. But I think the core is, you know, we are the people... (laughs) who put make the algorithms, we have the agency. And even though there is deep learning, it is in our hands. So as long as we don't have agency taken from us, then I, I think it's healthy. I think the problem is that the AI is bigger than any of our minds. And so the question is who, when you say that, ah, oh, go on. So one of the things that I try and do for public communication is to try and sort of communicate the different nature of an artificial intelligence. And so the machines we have, they're very, very high bandwidth. So actually even your home network connection is operating at 60 billion bits per second, right? So let's translate that into dollars. It's, it's roughly, you know, it's national budgets of dollars in terms of how a uh, machine is operating in terms of information. We're operating communication-wise about 2,000 bits per minute. So that'd be $2,000 per month. So the difference between the way where our intelligence exists is vast. We have this locked-in intelligence. We're, like, we're closer to people who can only wink to communicate than we are to the machine. Um, and I think that this is a lot about why our mind is so important and there's so much uncertainty about what each other is thinking. I mean, one of my immediate thoughts is, what does soul mean to all of you? What does mind mean to all of you? You're entitled to have it mean different things and that's one of the beauties about us. Now, if we were machines, we could just communicate exactly what that means. But um, I don't think we could actually because actually some of those concepts start to become, it becomes necessary that there's uncertainty around them. And, and it becomes necessary that they're undefined and that undefinedness is part of the human cultural experience. So in that sense, I think that it's very inaccessible to an intelligence that's working in a different way. It can only emulate it. It can't participate because it's not in the same condition as us. But we also anthropomorphise the robot, don't we? Nick? This is very interesting and I'm very broad agreement with what we're talking about. I think two absolutely critical words within this conversation talked about our intelligence and, and control. I think we massively magnify intelligence in this whole debate. We seem to think... I mean, I've read a Stephen Hawking lecture on this, that the quintessential characteristic of human beings is our intelligence. Our intelligence has enabled us to do what we uh, have achieved as a civilization. Intelligence is a business of processing effectively. We get machines to process, therefore they're intelligent, therefore they're inhuman, therefore they are human. And it completely overlooks the fact that intelligence is a factor in human um, identity, but so is embodiment, so is finiteness. So is relationality. None of us exists, could exist outside a relationship. So is vulnerability. All of these factors are absolutely critical to who we are. Reducing humanity to intelligence, claiming computers are super intelligent, is just a kind of a a, a bad card trick, as it were. I'm not completely antipathetic against the idea of robots having souls, as we provocatively put it. But frankly, how good they are at chess is not the fact I'm going to base that decision on. Well, that conversation could clearly have gone on much longer and you can hear more on the RMC website. That was the voice of Dr Nick Spencer from Theos. You can hear much more about this subject on the RMC press briefings from Tuesday the 24th of May for the next three Tuesdays at 2pm. Do visit the website for more details. (music) 
You're listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast, and this month we're giving you a flavour of our fourth day festival, Exploring Belief, which was held in mid-May in the wonderful Jewish Cultural Centre in North London, JW3. Coming up, women in religious leadership. Has anything changed? And a look at last year's Five Cities project, which brought together local journalists and representatives of faith groups in the area to open lines of communication and build relationships. But first, we were really glad to have with us the new religion editor for BBC News, Ali Makbul. Fresh from eight years as North America correspondent, he took up the post in April and spoke to Roger Bolton on stage, who asked him what he'd been told the job was. I think actually it was a little bit the other way. I, it, it's sort of a blank sheet. It's, it's been open for a little while. And I think there was sort of... In, in some respects, asking me what they thought I wanted it to be. And, and I spoke to an awful lot of people before starting the job within the BBC and outside the BBC. And I said, look, what I can bring to it is what I've brought to the other roles, which is human stories, which is trying to explain to our audience what's going on in our world. And... Faith is an area that I've been passionate about, intrigued about, intellectually curious about, has been a thread sort of running through all of those posts you were talking about, even back to Radio York, but certainly through Gaza overtly and in South Asia and perhaps more than anywhere in the US. I think I've just heard you very tactfully say that the BBC doesn't know what it wants and you had to tell it what it should have. Is that true? It's not quite that, but there are. There no, but did are they have? I mean, demands. normally what they do, they'd sit down, they'd say, "Look, this is broadly the strategy that we've got. You hope they would have that. This is broadly what we're looking for. What do you think, and what can you offer?" And I bet you the situation was they sat down and asked you what you wanted to do, because the BBC does not know, does not have a strategy for religion. They broadly did know that they wanted to improve religious literacy uh, through news. They broadly did know, and there is, you know, there's this sense outside the BBC, and I, I keep hearing it even today, that that somehow uh, editors are nervous about religion and faith stories. I, I haven't found that. I, I found, actually, there is a recognition that we need to report on those areas and the importance that faith plays in people's lives much more. I honestly feel it may be a honeymoon period because I only started this job a few weeks ago, but I feel like I'm pushing it an open door with stories that were getting on. Okay, if I wasn't pushing to get those stories on, maybe they, they wouldn't, but there's nobody saying, no, you can't do that. Well, let's make clear what this is, though. This is your job work. You work for BBC News. Yeah. You have no, as I understand, direct responsibility. There's no overall, as it were, head of news across the BBC to whom you report. You report to news. Other people in little pockets do their thing it's in their religion. Fault. In their Mistakes they make. Are their... In their area. There's no coordinated approach. There's no overall corporation-wide strategy. And there's nobody whose job it is to implement such a strategy. Actually, it... It, while I was sort of joking about the fact that it's their responsibility when they mess up, actually, again, I found it to be more coordinated than I expected it would be. I've been going But there's no backwards and you forwards. don't report to... You report to BBC well, News. You don't no, report as well to a no, director I, or head of religion. No, that... In my day-to-day -day job, I am answerable to, uh, to those news editors in London. But I am one of the people who interviewed me for the job is also in charge of radio programming on, on, in, uh, in Salford. And that is outside of news to some extent. And so I've been going up in Salford, uh, to Salford and chatting to people about religious programming more broadly. It's not my responsibility, but they recognise, as I recognise, that there is crossover and that we do need to know what's going on. And I am... Uh, I, I, you know, I, it's something that I really feel that I want to do uh, is to get to know how religion is handled more broadly outside news in the BBC. Can we just look at the resources you have to do the job? And, and let's assume you don't sleep at all. 
uh, which is a reasonable assumption. How big is the team that supports you? If you, for example, go with the Pope to South America, uh, who goes with you and who's looking after the shop while you're away? Well, you've met all of the team today, pretty much. Um, Harry over there, who you heard from earlier, is, is, uh, is actually, we're a, we're a three-member team. Uh, we have bosses in the wider sort of society team. Uh, but but there's uh, also a journalist called Claire Jones who's... who's but I might be totally cynical if I say that uh, because of the recent cuts in BBC News, they may be taken away uh, to fill rotors on the Today programme but elsewhere. <laughs> it's very sneaky. Uh, but, but um, yes, that's not going to be happening in, in the future. But there has been, you know, we'll, we'll, the BBC, as you know, the newsrooms of the BBC have been going through a little bit of turmoil because in order to get costs down, uh, they were talking about needing to lose posts and we've just got through the stage where those who wanted to leave have left. We're now in a restructuring period and during that restructuring period, after frankly, you know, I, I can't hide it, after having lost a lot of people with a lot of experience, a lot of brilliant people walked through the door, um, we are having to reorientate how teams work and it is a difficult phase i have been promised resources and um i have said that i wouldn't do the job without them because if it's a if it, it is a patch that deserves covering then it deserves covering well now you've got an audience here i think which is tremendously supportive and would wish you well as we all do but there are parts of, there are religious communities or parts of religious communities that are intensely suspicious of the BBC. Uh, in terms of the Jewish community, there was a lot of upset over the allegation of what happened in Oxford Street and so on. That's being looked at by Ofcom, it's before your time. But the, a lot of, uh, or quite a few uh, members of the Jewish community were uh, leapt to use the word anti-Semitism. You and I might have leapt to use the word cock-up, slow BBC response, etc., etc., etc. There are some equally in the Muslim community who think that there's no point talking to you because essentially you're operating within a different sort of area. Is there anything you can do in your job to make significant inroads into those suspicions and in some instances oppositions? I, I think, uh, well, I certainly don't blame some people for thinking that way because of instance that might have happened in the past and the way they've been handled, frankly, and I'm going back years. But, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to come today, although I was slightly hoodwinked by uh, Ruth Peacock into sitting right here, uh, I don't know what you put in my um, uh, oat milk flat white, um, but um, part of the reason I wanted to come here is because it's easy to do if you reach out, if you don't fully understand something. Now, the BBC is a big beast. There are lots of wings of it, and not everyone knows that if you're not sure about something, ask. But you can do it. We've done incredibly sensitive stories around religion and done them perfectly well because we've spoken to people who devote their lives to these kind of themes and are there on tap if you if you want to give them a call, to advise. We did a story last year uh, as a sort of break from my time in the US. I spent a few months at Newsnight. And during the Gaza conflict, uh, you know, I, I was having been in Gaza for a while. I reported on it very directly. And then I suggested a story that perhaps we might do a few days or even weeks down the track about just, I, I was just intrigued about the extent to it, or I felt we needed to reflect the extent to which Israel was integral oh, to, to Jewish identity now. And I didn't expect the editor to say, yes, let's do it tonight. A six-minute piece tonight. Uh, so I thought, okay, this could well be the last day but that I work at the BBC. But the point was that morning I reached out to friends of mine on the Jewish News and yeah. other, other publications, other people I knew in the community said, right, how do we do this well? What is the right way to do this? We got a six-minute piece on, and actually I was really heartened by, by what I heard from members of the Jewish community across the spectrum who thought that was a really useful debate to have. It can be done by reaching out. There are lots of arms of the BBC, as you well know. Not everyone gets it right, 
I do want to, and it's starting to happen, I do want to encourage people, it's not all going to be my responsibility or Harry's responsibility, but to get in touch with us and if they're unsure about something and try and do it in a, in a joined-up way. The BBC's brand-new religion editor, Ali Makbul. Last year, the Religion Media Centre, with generous help and funding from Cullum St Gabriel Trust, ran the Five Cities Project, spending a day each in Leeds, Plymouth, Nottingham, Birmingham and Manchester, bringing together local journalists, faith groups and community leaders to open lines of communication, improve understanding and build relationships and trust. So, how did we do? Leo Devine gathered together some of the key participants to reflect on how it went and what difference it might have made. On the panel were Dr Catherine Wright, CEO of the Cullum St Gabriel Trust, Francis Finn, an ordained priest and also a BBC broadcaster and journalist, Michelle Mayman, TV editor of BBC Northwest Tonight, Alex Strangeways Booth, BBC journalist and religion specialist for BBC Local Radio, Mark Thomas from ITV, who has a responsibility for diversity and inclusion. Dr Jagbir Jutti Johal, reader in Sikh studies at the University of Birmingham. And the Reverend Clive Foster, a pastor and also multi-faith manager at Nottingham University. As you can hear, it was a cost of thousands. The discussion begins with Michelle talking about how their faith coverage in the Northwest has begun to improve. We actually talked more about it in the newsroom, so... For example, just recently, it was Ramadan, and we did a story about prayers at Ewood Park Football Club. It was the first time prayers had been held at Ewood Park Football Club. And actually, it was, it was a new story. It was something new. It hadn't happened before. It wasn't just about, hey, did you know it's Ramadan? It was, look at this, look at this community in action. And it works really well for a program like mine. Um, so I do the 6.30 evening programme and we try to take you on a journey from that hard news that starts at the top of the programme. And by the end of the programme, I'm going to deliver you to the one show. I do not want to end my programme on hard news. And actually, there are some great stories amongst your communities. And huge audience engagement still for those 6.30 programmes across the whole of the UK. Yeah. Mark from ITV. I'm sure there's a lot of things there will echo with you. But tell us, first of all, a bit about your role. You took part in the Southwest event. So I'm a, um, a news editor with ITV West Country, which involves fixing and, and planning stories. But another hat that I wear is I'm a um, diversity and inclusion champion and as a white, heterosexual, middle-aged male, that doesn't look particularly good for, for ITV. But in, in a way, I hope that kind of drives me to really commit to that role. Something that regional news programmes can do in, in a way that perhaps is harder for the six o'clock or for the 10 o'clock news is to reflect and to celebrate the diversity and richness of a, of a community and all that that looks like. We have, um, uh, we have a panel which gives an opportunity for people from a, uh, a diverse range of uh, backgrounds to talk about our programmes, to talk about what's big in their world, but also to meet us. We do media training, we invite them to our studio in Bristol. But one of the things about our panels is we want the people who are on it to be critical friends, to hold us to account and to tell us when we get it wrong and how we can be better. Alex, BBC Local Radio, I mean, you've got a, a role that kind of encompasses all of the 40 stations now, I always forget the exact number, to be honest. You're really the front door, aren't you, for faith groups getting their stories and what's happening in their communities onto the BBC. I think local radio is an amazing platform for faith groups to be heard. You know, we don't specialise in bad news on local radio, that is true. So what Aleem was saying about the six and the ten, we don't necessarily have those challenges. But what I always say to the producers is if you're making a link with a community like doing Passover, it means that the next time you have to do a story about anti-Semitism, you formed a bond of trust with that community and you can go to them and get them to speak about the difficult and uncomfortable subjects. So what I always say to the local radio broadcasters is, you know, do those stories. Don't, you know, it doesn't, you have to do some good news stories with faith communities 
in order to be able to do the bad news stories with them. You know, I say to people, the BBC belongs to you. It is a public service broadcaster and you have every right to get in touch with your local radio station and ask to be featured on it because it belongs to you. Catherine, um, you've seen what we've done. You've heard some, you know, the, the kind of the feedback from the panels here. What do you think we should be doing next? And can we have some money? <laughs> I think one of the key things um, that's come through all of this is about trust and about building relationships. Um, and I think, therefore, something that's going to... You've, you've had great events and there's been already really good impact. So I think building on that, but looking at whether you perhaps do some more events, but how you build on the ones you've already done as well, and continuing to develop those relationships and those connections between different people... And also, I'll come back to schools as well. It was interesting, over lunch, we were sort of talking a little bit as well. Um, and I think one of the things I'd like um, particular journalists and those involved with media to do is to shout about the importance of an education in religion and worldviews, or often referred to as religious education, in schools. Because then, hopefully over time, we will get journalists who are well-educated in um, religion and worldview literacy, um, who will be wanting to advocate and find those stories and be aware, if you like, um, of perhaps challenging sometimes sort of relational issues um, and so on as well. So I'd like to kind of swing it back as well and get journalists and those in the media to really shout for this subject and be advocates for the subject as well. And I know some of you are, um, and I know some of the people in the audience are as well, already doing that, particularly through social media. Um, but I just encourage others to do that. But I think basically it comes down to, to relate building those relationships, I think is the key thing okay. from my point of view. Because I know, Clive, you mentioned media training as perhaps being the next step for communities but is there actually a place for training journalists who somewhere we expect a journalist to know about health education football whatever it is when it comes to faith and religion is there a gap i think um building those relationships being relational from a, um and trying to understand those communities i can only help i think the quality of output um and i think that trust will be accepted because look you know, I think faith communities understand that, you know, um, the media has a role to do and a, and a job to do. But um, as I mentioned earlier, I think what was happening in Nottingham, some of the feedback we were getting was, is that, you know, a faith leader will go in front of a journalist and then they'll ask them something that's happened in the news that day about something which is quite controversial out of the loop. It was well explained on the day in Nottingham that for a journalist, that sort of thing to happen um, is part of journalism. But for faith communities, that would be like a big shock. I mean, I've got friends who are who are ministers from the black community, and they would be very apprehensive in, in going into uh, uh, into a studio for those kind of causes. But I think communities, um, journalists coming to understand some of the, the, the lifestyle of, of communities is really important. Francis, did you all <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, Clive, to push back there, but I don't remember saying to faith leaders, uh, be ex expect a question about child abuse in your institution. Because um, I, I think that we would give forewarning of that. That is the respectful thing to do. Um, we did have an incident, I was being spoken to by um, the dean of our Catholic cathedral last week saying how upset they were that one of their senior cardinals was asked a question about an ongoing uh, investigation in child abuse and I uh, and I did sort of half apologize on behalf of the BBC but the other half said well if you are a senior leader in your institution and this is happening perhaps you should expect but generally speaking it is a respectful thing for us to do to give you forewarning. Um, and if you're not happy with something you've been asked, you can always not answer it. But yeah, point. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's right to name this, though, as an area of, okay. of Alex, caginess. Alex, you were bursting to say something, which is no, uh, Fran, not I unusual. Disagreeing. I mean, I, would, I did want to say that with, with the local radio faith shows, what we did over the pandemic, we started to do these long, uh, these 10 minute reflections from the Muslim, Sikh, and Hindu communities. For, which were run on about 14 of the stations with big communities of those faiths. And we did a, a half-hour Sunday service. And we've, we've stopped doing that now, but the producers who made the reflections have stayed part of that local radio team. So every week we are hoping to get really good stories from those, those communities so that local radio is always going to have those voices on. And that's, like, that's a commitment because those guys have got to know people really well over two years. 
Um, I'm not going to ignore the rest of the panel. We'll come back to them. But we have got a big panel. But I also want some questions from the audience too. Uh, this gentleman over here. Uh, so my name is Peter Crumpler. I've been involved in the interface between uh, faith and media for m many years. Can I say one of the things that COVID taught us, wasn't it, that local is really important. We became much more focused on our local area. Certainly my street now has a WhatsApp group, and that's probably the case for most of us sitting in this room today. So in effect, looking around the panel in front of me, you're all too big. Michelle, you're too big. I, just, I was just going to say, but then, of course, if you leave it to communities to write all their own news, you don't have the checks and balances in there, you don't have the professionals who are keeping you on the right side of the law, you don't have the people who are questioning. It would be very easy for that echo chamber to get louder and louder and louder. So it's really important that actually there is that outside involvement as well, however big. I know it is difficult when you cover, you know, a big region. Is this something you recognise amongst faith groups themselves, that actually it's really, really hard when something is as big as regional television or, as the questioner said, even local radio, to kind of penetrate that veneer and to get your voice heard? We did a big event in 2019 on campus. It was the first of its kind. Um, it was where the Sikh community brought the Guru Granth Sahib, the Holy Scripture, onto campus and did a three-day prayer recital. And that's never happened before, nationally, but also internationally. And I remember um, it was ITV, the local ITV media coming, um, and they kind of saw, uh, they'd seen a tweet or something um, on social media that this was happening, and they made contact with us. And then just having those reports um, going out built up those relationships, and then you had the um, other media outlets coming in. But it's that level of, um, when you build up those relationships, yes, they, it might seem overwhelming, but once you have those, the community can see that you are, you, you're interested in the good stories, but also you, you have that interest in the bad, but um, you're willing to work with us and engage. So I, I just think um, it's about confidence, and um, um, having confidence in that your, your voice will be heard, that it will be respected and that you are part of a society where the whole media gets to hear your story. These kind of events clearly do make a difference in building trust between local media and local faith communities. There's much more about the Five Cities Project on our website and we hope to be running more in the future. So to our final panel from this year's Religion Media Festival. And this one was chaired by me, entitled Women in Religious Leadership. Has anything changed? On the panel were Professor Linda Woodhead, F.D. Morris Chair in Moral and Social Theology, King's College London. Dr. Maria Mehmood, Teaching Fellow at the University of Birmingham, Associate Director, Edward Cadbury Centre for the Public Understanding of Religion and a trustee for the Women's Interfaith Network. The Right Reverend Dr Joe Bailey-Wells, Bishop of Dorking in the Church of England Diocese of Guildford. And Rabbi Debbie Young-Summers, Rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue and Radio 2 Pause for Thought contributor. Mariam responded to the question in the context of her own Muslim experience. Leadership for Muslim women doesn't just mean, um, you know, just because many Orthodox communities, Muslim communities, they... Um, might not want to, might not wish to preach at a pulpit, does that make them any less of a leader in their own right? And um, some people say, well, we need to detach our understanding of uh, traditional leadership from patriarchal and misogynistic understandings of what it means to be a leader. And I, and I would agree with that because I don't think tradition is to be set in a binary with progressivism. You know, progressive traditions exist and they've outdate and, and long stand prior to even the Me Too movement within the Islamic tradition. You know, it is rich with feminist understandings and interpretations of what it means to be a leader. There are community leaders who I teach who are women from across the faith spectrum and um, many of them do not stand at a pulpit, many of them do. And um, what we need to acknowledge and embrace is the diversity and plurality from within those traditions. Mm. I asked about whether different faith communities keep an eye on what others are doing to inform their own decisions and progress. 
Here's Debbie. 20 years ago, when I was asked to speak, it was actually off, often tokenistic. We want a young female, let's get her. Oh, and she's a Jew, even better. Um, and I think that tokenism, in, in particularly in media sense, has been really fascinating. Um, and actually, you know, I remember sitting in a dialogue space where there was a, a group of about 10 of us. I was the only Jewish woman. There was one Jewish, sorry, one Christian woman. And she left the group. And I said, can we please replace her with another woman? And I was told there were, wasn't anyone qualified, which I find astonishing. Um, and at, from that moment on, I actually consciously decided that those interfaith relationships I was going to really work on were female. Um, and I have many meaningful relationships with men and women from across different faiths. Rather than watching other faiths, I really learn in dialogue with my um, colleagues, whether they're ordained or not, um, because we particularly, you know, in the world that we live in, we do experience very similar things um, in serving our communities. The challenges we face can be very similar. Um, and actually studying our theology together can be really enlightening, hearing that theology lived through another woman's experience mm. and another man's experience, another person's experience. But, you know, I have found, rather than watching other faiths, I've just wanted to learn with particularly female colleagues. Mm. Linda? I think the internet is incredibly important here, and, and, and um, Marion made me think about that, because it does allow, it's allowed, in religion, it's allowed a voice for groups who have felt abused or marginalised or oppressed to meet one another, often yeah. across geographical you know, regions and whatever. That was never possible before, and it allows them to build up a, a critical mass to really make an impact, including in some very, very conservative faith, both Christian and non-faith, that's that's really noticeable. That what, what change, how change comes through that, and it's back to your point about informal leadership, not necessarily the the formal leaders bringing change from the margins in that way. Mm. Exactly. Can I just yes, sure. piggyback on that? Yeah. I love this. It's such sisterhood, uh, you know, at play. Um, you mentioned the margins, and this is exactly what I wanted to, you know, if there's one message I wanted to get across here, is that we shouldn't be looking at this entire conversation as a binary between the powerful and the powerless. You know, it goes back to taking uh, a leaf from... Um, black feminist uh, American uh, activist such as Bell Hooks. So she, you know, she, her feminist theory, if anyone's read it, it is about from centers, it's from margin to center. It's about understanding that power isn't, or authority isn't to be understood as just, you know, being um, concentrated at the center. But actually, if we transform our understanding of what authority means and recognize we all have agency, we all have that authority. It is about recognizing it. It is about celebrating it. We talked about what seems now to be an inevitable backlash when women put their heads above the parapet in all kinds of contexts and whether there's a particular flavour to that for women in positions of religious leadership. Here's Bishop Joe, who was very obviously a bishop in purple shirt and dog collar. Certainly in my own experience, I could dwell on the negative stuff. I, I try to make a discipline of not doing so. <laughs> but the people who might not share my faith, but support the fact that I'm in the role, is utterly phenomenal. You know, far outnumbers the opposition. So how do you experience that? Oh, even on a bus. Actually, coming here on the tube with my fold-up bike, it fell over on the uh, overground line from Clapham Junction, whatever line that is, the Stratford line. Uh, and a, a lovely Rasta guy... I was on my phone and talking about something in Ukraine for next week. And he said, let me hold your bike. And he literally just put his foot there so it wasn't going to fall, fall over again. And then he said, I love it that you're in that collar. <laughs> I, I don't know if he knew what it meant. You know, well, I guess he wouldn't have said it otherwise. But, you know, coming from Jamaica, he was saying there's something radical. And, 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 and it, you know, he was just trying to... Help me. Yeah. When I was doing too many things at once. But is that your kind of overwhelming experience of, of that, that kind of reaction? I mean, apart from the people that haven't the foggiest, which is also delightful, actually, <laughs> you know, th this no longer speaks in the way a generation mm. ago. I think it was obvious in a that, that That's fine. Um, it is broadly my experience. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. On a train, random people will say, go for it more than they will say, who are you? you know. And actually, I think that allyship is really 
something I experienced. Women and men. Yes, absolutely. You know, having my male colleagues, my non-binary colleagues, whoever it is, stand up when someone says, oh, I'm not sure I want a woman doing that funeral. Um, And them saying, well, then we're not the right synagogue for you. Or, you know, actually, I don't have to say that now. It's my male colleagues that do that. And thinking about how it might have been a while ago, that would have been different, would it? Certainly in my community, I I think every community functions in its own way. I think, you know, particularly around death, for example, you don't want to upset a family, they've just been bereaved. But actually, you know, so my instinct is to say, well, of course, you know, we'll find another way, don't worry. But when it comes to life cycle moments, my colleagues are now saying, well, if they don't want a woman, we're not the right community. And it it has happened far less than I thought it would happen, Mm. which is comforting. But it also means that we have to be allies. So I remember about... 13, 14 years ago, I was at a Friday night dinner and an elderly couple leant over to me and said, oh, it's so nice to meet a student rabbi who's a woman and isn't a lesbian. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, what do you know about my background? (laughs) Um, But um, actually, you know, I want to challenge people and say, isn't it wonderful that I just did a wedding for two brides and to celebrate all the diversity in our communities, not just women's leadership. Um, and for us to be allies for each other and for everyone. I think, you know, when you're not employing 50% of the community, you're missing out on 50% of the talent. So it, it's an own goal, really. But in terms of society's perception of religion, despite advances in progressive thought across the faiths, Professor Linda Woodhead had a rather despairing view of the situation. I would sum it up by saying that, in a way, fundamentalism has won. So people think that the, if you're really religious, you take a fundamentalist view. There are certain really clear propositions. God's like this, and heterosexual marriage is the only way to live, etc., etc. And that's real religion. And anything less is liberal, wishy-washy, not really sincere. And actually, the mainstream media have done a lot of harm there as well by getting on a fundamentalist and an atheist, who both have that very simplistic view of what religion is. Mm-hmm. And the, where most people are just gets blocked out of the debate because it's a bit too complex. So it gets to get kind of polarised. So it gets very polarised. And then it's sort of self-fulfilling because young people think, God, I don't want anything to do with religion. If it's like that, it's absolutely awful. And if those are its spokesmen... And so they say, no, I'm not religious when they're asked on the census because who would want to have that as part of your identity to... So, or, or they'll apologise. You know, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not like the church, or I don't like, you know, I'm Christian, but I don't go to church. Or, and they immediately have to qualify it, because if you say you're, you're religious, people immediately assume all sorts of terrible things about you, uh, which is partly why the word spirituality emerged as an alternative for people. Uh, but it's a really unfortunate that, that the discourse is so tainted in this way and that most religious voices don't get a fair hearing. No, absolutely Joe, how do you feel about that when you're sort of around the parishes where you're meeting people? I mean, not just in churches, but in, in communities as well. Yeah, I, I mean, there's little place for subtlety, is what Linda's saying. And I, I completely agree with that. And religion is nothing if it's not about nuance. You know, scripture, coming back to our texts, it's really complicated. It's jolly hard to understand. You know, I've got a PhD in biblical studies and I still find it hard, <laughs> you know. Um, so how, how, is, how is an average person uh, really expected to get a handle on, uh, you know, yes, there's this, there's that, there's the big picture, there's the deep, you know. So, I mean, I, I suppose the only answer to that is to narrate and teach and teach and talk and tell stories contemporary stories that illustrate ancient principles and you know have we still got permission in the public space to tell religious stories and I think that space has diminished Mm. and certainly patience and attention spans have diminished (laughs) and we're competing with sport you know I mean so much else (laughs) going on that's not really a moan it's just very competitive and we're losing Well, that's it for this month's rather different Religion Media Centre podcast, giving you a flavour of our 2022 Exploring Belief Festival. The interviews and panel discussions are available in full on the website and do think about joining us in person for next year's festival. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you, so do let us know what you think and respond to the stories we're covering. 
You can do that on Twitter using at RealMed Centre or email us on info at religionmediacentre.org.uk. We'll be back next month with the more usual range of stories, discussion, interviews and reflection. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.